I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this first episode of the year of Trade Guys, we'll talk about the North American Leaders Summit next week, USMACA, and what the Biden administration should anticipate in trade in the year ahead, all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, Happy New Year. We're back, and we are heavily supported by the great Emily Benson and the great Jaffet Quitson, who are backing this show. They're our great producers. We don't give them enough credit. Gentlemen, it's a new year, but we're still talking about you, Smacka. The Mexico's hosting the North American Leaders Summit next week. What should we watch for? Well, according to today's move, we should watch for everything but trade. The Mexicans put out a, a press release saying they were going to discuss security and climate. And from the looks of the American attendees, which are the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Mexican attendees, which are their interior minister and their finance minister, and their public security minister, as well as their economic minister. It sounds like they're going to discuss a lot of things besides trade. I'm not sure if Ambassador Tai is going. She's not listed here, although it says, you know, there are going to be others. Uh, maybe she's a, like a surprise guest. They're not announcing her because she's the big guns and they're, you know, they're going to that may bust be. it out on them, you know. Her Canadian and Mexican there. counterparts will be there, so I assume she will be too. There are bilaterals the day before, with AMLO's having one with each of the two other leaders, Trudeau and, and Biden. I suspect trade issues will come up there. And as far as uh, the United States is concerned, there's a lot of them. There's dairy, there's energy, there's corn, cars. It's probably something else that I'm forgetting. And there's been a bunch of labor issues that uh, in Mexico that have been success stories in the sense that USMACA has a uh, dispute settlement system. Seems to be working. We brought some cases. They've been resolved. There have been actual votes and old unions that were in bed with management have been kicked out and unions that are not have been voted in. I mean, we'll see what happens, but it seems to be that part of it seems to be a good news story. The other commodity issues, dairy, cars, energy, corn, proved to be more difficult to solve. Definitely the uh, U.S. USMACA autos is going to be a subject of discussion, mostly because there's a dispute that is ready to report that is unfavorable to the U.S. and favorable to the Canada and Mexico. But uh, just to highlight the range of issues, Bill's right that we had a dispute with Canada on uh, dairy, specifically tariff rate quotas on dairy imports from the United States, which the panel found on that the United States was in the right and the Canada was in the wrong. Canada supposedly fixed it. But like most market access issues for agriculture, it plays out like a form of three-card Monty. And uh, so you turn over that last card and says, sorry, pick the wrong one. <laughs> so so we're, re we're relitigating that with Canada. But I would note that uh, in middle of December, Jamie White, who's deputy U.S. trade representative, met with the undersecretary of, for the economy ministry of Mexico. They listed five issues, imports of goods with forced labor, of which there is a prohibition of do, for doing so in USMACA. There apparently are some restrictions on electronic payments 
suppliers in Mexico that the U.S. is concerned about. And two issues we've talked before. One is biotech regulation, particularly corn from the imports from the United States. Energy, which has a series of disagreements where Canada and the United States share concerns about Mexican policy when it comes to energy. And then the final one is fisheries, which I, I wasn't even aware of till it showed up in uh, Ambassador White's press release. Oh, is this so, the dolphin issue, the, the rare dolphin? Yes, which is really uh, is uh, both old and new. So, but, so there's a long list. What's the issue with dolphins? It's a special small kind of dolphin, and there's only like a single-digit number of them left. I think they're in the Baja Gulf, and hunting them, or well, killing them, fishing for them, trapping them is prohibited. It's prohibited in Mexican law. It's an enforcement question, because there aren't very many of them. There's been concern that lax enforcement is going to lead to extinction. You have to ask yourself, who the hell would hunt a dolphin? Well, that's not necessarily what they're going after, but they get caught up in right. I see in the nets, or they get hit by mistake. You know, it depends on what means the fishermen are using. And this is in the Gulf of California. Yeah, I haven't heard about it for a couple of years, but if Jamie's mentioning it, it's still on the list. It's a problem that has not gotten better. I mean, it's a complicated problem because it's not like. Mexican law is unhelpful. Mexican law is is in the right place on this. The question is whether they're effectively protecting the dolphins, and that appears to be the issue. So along those lines, though, guys, what can the U.S. do to enhance the credibility of USMCA USMACA dispute resolution system? Well, the first thing it can do is accept the verdict in the car case and comply. They don't have to bite that bullet quite yet because the verdict is not public, but everybody knows what it is. It's been, you know, it's been circulated to the parties. The result is leaked. We lost. The Canadians and the Mexicans won. And I'm very worried after the United States lost at the WTO on some other matters and then sort of thumbed its nose at the process and rejected it. I'm worried that we're going to do the same thing. In this case, it's not a WTO case. It's a USMCA case. But, you know, when you lose a case, basically you've got three choices. Comply. And in this case, it means change our interpretation of the rules, which I can explain in a minute. Or ignore, in which case the other guys get to retaliate against you. Or pay compensation, which is something that hasn't been broached yet in this situation. USMACA has several different content standards, basically raising the NAFTA regional content standard from 62.5% to 75%, which is a big bump. And it's a standard that they've got for parts and components, and it's also a standard they've got for the final vehicle. And the issue that has been litigated is that the way that NAFTA dealt with this, and the way that this happens in most cases, is that if your part and component meets the, in this case, 75% standard, it's deemed to be North American. And what that means is that when it's rolled up into the final car, it counts as 100% regional content, not the 75% that it is actual content. In other words, it gets rounded up as it's incorporated into the car. That's the pretty standard way of doing this. It's the way that they did it in NAFTA for 20 plus years. And it was the way that the Canadians and the Mexicans have argued was negotiated in USM MCA. Ambassador Lighthizer interpreted the agreement differently after it was agreed to and, and was in the process of being implemented. Uh, and he interpreted the agreement to mean that 75% is 75% and there's not going to be any rounding up. What that means is that it's harder to meet the overall content requirement and it means that the companies have to build more Canadian, American, or Mexican parts into their cars if they're going to meet the 75%. That has disrupted everybody's supply chains. Nobody's very happy about it. But the litigation didn't turn on who's happy. 
litigation turned on what was negotiated, because that's really the deciding factor and what the panel apparently concluded. We don't have their their written thing yet, but what they apparently concluded is if you look at what was negotiated, what was negotiated is what is rounding up, is what the Mexicans and the Canadians uh, agreed to, and that the U.S. interpretation is anomalous and, and inconsistent. So that's going to come out this month, I think. And then the question will be, what is the U.S. going to do? If they reject it, they really are going to uh, undermine the agreement and undermine the dispute settlement agreement, and I think undermine our position on all the other cases that where we're pursuing, where we're the aggrieved party. The Canadians on dairy, the Mexicans on corn. If we're not going to comply with a car ruling, how are we going to expect the, the Mexicans to comply with a corn ruling if we win that one? And we probably would in that case. Yeah, this is one, if you think about it, a car has roughly speaking 150,000 parts in it when you go to put it together. Some of the subassemblies are quite complicated. So think of an engine or a transmission, probably more than 20,000 parts in a modern transmission. So that's a subassembly that gets traded as that subassembly, not as a pile of 20,000 parts. And so the, the, how you interpret the, the sort of accumulation rules and the content rules for those very complicated but separate components that are traded themselves is key to this. And I think Bill's described it well. The U.S. has a lot riding on actually complying and making these agreements work. The most important part is the car industry is in trouble if you don't do this. Keep in mind, U.S. auto sales in 2022 were the lowest since 2011. All total U.S. auto sales was 13.7 million vehicles in the calendar year just completed. That was down 8% from the prior year, lowest since 2011. So it's a tough time for automakers. What started out as a bunch of supply problems, like we talked about on this show, with the availability of IT products and, and other components that go into the production of an automobile, we ended the year with a demand problem because prices have been rising and the consumer financing costs have been rising as the Fed has increased its headline interest rates. So interest rates going up, cars payments of a certain amount finance less value in the car and the car prices are going up themselves. So the industry is facing a downturn. And the last thing it needs is disruption in its networks that keep them from making the most efficient cars for the consumers because you make a, you'll make a bad situation worse. Well, so let me ask this. In general, are the North American trade relations headed down the right path? Well, we're doing what we tend to do in the absence of some crisis, which is we generally have a lot of trade moving among the three parties. These are our largest and third largest trading partners. So uh, we do a lot of a lot of border crossing with products and, and services, but we fight about small things that we tend to never solve. And so the only criticism I would have of the program is nobody's thinking big. We're thinking about the small things we always argue about, like dairy tariff rate quotas, and nobody's thinking big about the opportunities that are for North America, an efficient North American production operation as companies want to leave China, as companies look for more reliable supply partners, or on the energy side, we now have the, the technology to be energy independent in North America and with a lot of geostrategic and economic advantages. And nobody's thinking about those big things where Back to the original promise of North American free trade, which was we'll make things together and sell them to each other in the world in a very efficient manner. We've lost sight of that. I look at it slightly differently. Things have been getting better. The agreement seems to be working. 
But we're kind of at an inflection point. I mean, these the cases that we've been talking about that Scott just referred to, these are not new. And there's other ones that we've had in some cases like lumber with Canada for 30 years. So we fight about these things. I don't want to say they're small. They're really important for the people in those industries, but they're very specific. <clears throat> but we fight about them and we get over them. But we're reaching a point now where some of these things are going to be litigated. There's going to be an answer. You know, there's an arbitration process that's set up and we're going to lose this one. I think the dairy one we won so far. There's going to be, you know, some of the labor ones we've won. Those are inflection points because when there's a result, victory or a loss, then the loser has a decision to make. Am I going to reaffirm the system and comply or am I going to thumb my nose at it? And that's what we're facing. And if you want the relationship to get stronger and better, I think when you lose, you have to comply. And that goes for us, but it also goes for the Canadians on the dairy side. Mm -hmm. And it's going to go for the Mexicans in these other cases as well. Well, guys, before we take a look at the year ahead, I have to point out, of course, that Tulane, my alma mater, was victorious in the Cotton Bowl. This is the first time in 83 years Tulane has been in a major college bowl. First of all, they were the champions of their conference. That's the right. American conference. The American. So they, they, they came in with a, with a very strong record and a conference championship. But they played the University of Southern California, which nearly made the uh, national college football playoffs. That's right. The uh, important thing is you don't see USC demanding a recount, and you don't see them <laughs> rejecting the result, right? Well, Bill, that's because Tulane's my alma mater, and as you know, I'm an adjunct professor there. But now I'm an adjunct professor at USC at the Annenberg School. So, you know, I'm trying to bring parties together here. Divided loyalties. It's almost as if you would had married someone who was a Michigan grad. That's right. That's right. When what you know, the bottom line is there is no divided loyalty when it comes to football, as you all know. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. But congratulations to Tulane. Thank yes. you. Yes. Roll wave, a one, two, a hell of a hullabaloo. Here we go. Let's look at the year ahead, guys. The administration, the Biden administration has taken a non-traditional approach to trade, pursuing alternative arrangements such as IPEF, U.S.-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade. Is the Biden administration's approach likely to change anytime soon? And do you guys think it's the right approach? It's not going to change anytime soon, but there's going to be mounting pressure on him to change. And you can see that developing already. The Washington Post did an editorial yesterday that was exact, made exactly that point. I had a conversation yesterday with somebody in Congress that was suggested that pressure there was gathering. There are Republicans that want to use the trade issue as a means of pressuring the president. The part of the opposition party's duty is to oppose. So they're going to oppose the president on a lot of things. But I think there's a number of them that look at trade as one where they may be able to get some traction, certainly with the business community, which has been disappointed with the president's policy. But it goes back even to, I think we mentioned this last April when Ambassador Tai was in a hearing with a, one of her semi-annual hearings with the Senate Finance Committee. And Senator Cantwell, who's a Democrat from Washington and, and a pro-trade Democrat, said, basically, you know, all this... In environment, labor stuff, this is all fine. These are all good things, but can't we do both? Can't we do market access at the same time? Sort of the walk and chew gum argument, you know, we ought to be able to do both. And the administration has shown a remarkable lack of interest in, in the trade piece of trade, particularly in exports. They, they don't seem to be very interested in export promotion, which politically is win-win. I mean, nobody's against exports. That's job creation. That's wealth creation. 
but they're they're not doing very much. And I think what you're going to see is more and more pressure on them to say not to abandon what they're doing, but to say you can do other stuff at the same time. And what trade agreements do is they create benefits and you're worried about who gets the benefits. You're worried about distribution. And OK, we can buy the worry about distribution, but let's talk about benefit creation as well. And let's talk about trade agreements that will actually create more benefits. I'm concerned, as Bill's already articulated, I'm concerned about the U.S.'s willingness to play by the rules it helped create. We both uh, ranted about uh, the uh, national security case, the aluminum and steel case at the uh, World Trade Organization. But if you think about this in the context of our most important foreign policy challenges, the Indo-Pacific, Asia-Pacific, however you want to define that region, is of vital interest to the United States. And it's a place where economic policy is foreign policy. And if we don't have an active, engaged, rules-based economic policy for our allies and friends and partners in the Indo-Pacific, we're out of business. They'll get tired of our lectures about whatever we want to lecture them about if we're not prepared to engage commercially, which is how they create jobs, how they create a rationale for working with the United States. So I just I just don't see the status quo delivering in good enough results to merit continuation. So although Bill's right, it probably will continue. If we head into a recession, and I'm not sure that we will, but if we if we do or even slower growth, I think pressure is going to grow. I mean, I, unlike Scott, who's great with data, I'm terrible with numbers. But the one data point that I remember is that 95% of the world's consumers are not in the United States. We are a mature, slow growth economy. 3% is really a good year for us. And if you want to grow, and the companies know this, they're not dummies. If you want to grow, it means you got to look outside the United States. We, we have not reached the point of Japan where we're actively declining, but our birth rate, uh, you know, the, the replacement rate in order to keep the population the, the same size it is, is 2.1. And last year, ours was 1.66. So we are below the replacement rate. We've been below the replacement rate for a while. We've compensated with immigration. But we don't have immigration policy that promotes that now, but we are very slowly becoming Japan. And that's not the way to grow. And the one of the ways to grow economically is to look outwards. And that's what we're missing with the administration. They're looking inwards. They're talking about job creation here, manufacturing job creation here, which is totally ignoring the question of, you know, there are already more than 10 million jobs vacant. We don't have the workers to fill the jobs that are being created. And then we have these strange people out there arguing against immigration when we don't have enough people. If the economy slows down, as is predicted this year, I think you're going to see much more pressure on the administration to do much more outreach, to focus much more on export promotion, and to focus on the kind of trade agreements that uh, Scott was referring to a couple of minutes ago. Well, how might, though, a global downturn inhibit the trade goals of the administration? Well, I was looking at it the other way around, which is how a downturn would pressure the administration into a more aggressive trade promotion policy to try to compensate for uh, economic, a slowdown in growth here. I think probably economists might argue that that's foolish because one of the characteristics of a downturn or a recession is a decline in demand and therefore a decline of imports. And we said on this podcast frequently, you know, if you want to cure the trade deficit problem, have a recession. That's the best way to do it. 
But you have to look at both sides of the equation. And there's a lot more that we could do to promote exports. And if you promote exports, you're going to be promoting growth and you are going to be promoting job creation, which will offset the declines that we're worried about. Now, it's a fair point. If there's a global recession or if other countries are in worse shape than we are, we may not get very far with those goals. But I think there's going to be more pressure on the president to undertake that kind of policy. Well, you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, as we enter the third year of the Biden presidency, what advice do you all have for the administration? Scott, you want to go first? They have their agenda. They're in place now. They have a policy program that they're, they're pushing. What I would encourage them to do is have some confidence in the American worker, the American economy. And there's no reason to be defensive about what the U.S. can do when we work together and do it. We make the best products in the world. We've got the most innovative economy in the world. And that ought to be the easiest thing to sell. So I understand the programs on Buy America, but I'd encourage them to sell America as well. This is still the greatest, most dynamic, strongest economy in the world in many respects, particularly when it comes to innovation and dynamism. And that's something that I find missing from the administration's messages to the point that they almost apologize for being, you know, Americans, which we shouldn't. We, we should be proud of the country and proud of what we, we can do uh, as, as an economy. I think, and I think that's good for the world when you really get down to it. So that's my one, one encouragement is we, we can really be working from strength, which we don't talk about much. Bill, what are you telling them to do? My advice to the president is listen to the trade guys. <laughs> listen to our podcast, pay attention. We know what to do. Just follow our guidance. Well, the last time one of his, his people listened, I believe Catherine Ty got upset with the trade guys. So, you know, we've got some fences to mend here. That's been known to happen. But as they said about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, we persist. <laughs> well, they, they can count on us for honest advice. That's I mean, right. It's not, it won't always be appreciated. Maybe they don't like the timing. Maybe they don't like the specific comments, but uh, we'll give them our best judgment. Well, we know when we're getting, you know, members of Congress on the Republican side ticked off, members of Congress on the Democratic side ticked off and the administration ticked off, we must be doing something right. Well, I should also say that I am at least temporarily in a, in a much better mood because just as you're celebrating Tulane, I'm celebrating the arrival of grandson number two. Oh, congratulations. That is exciting. He's born the day after Christmas. His name is Milo. Uh, oh, wow. Which, awesome. depending upon your generation and your literary heritage, either comes from the Phantom Toll booth or from Catch-22. That is a generational difference. But Milo arrived weighing 8 pounds, 10 ounces, and Milo is enormous. Big dude. And uh, we're going up to visit him tomorrow. So there will be Milo reports uh, forthcoming from time to time. Emily, who is a sage on these things, said that uh, two grandsons are now uh, Max and Milo, which he thought sounded like a hipster bar in Brooklyn. For sure. Uh, and so 20 years from now, that may be what we get. We'll see. That's right. Or if he's eight pounds, 10 ounces, you may have a, a right tackle on your hands. So, you know. That could be good, too. That could be, yes. All right, guys. Until next time, Happy New Year. Lots to talk about this year, and glad we're back in the saddle. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.